0: Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on them. that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people
1: in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how it all affects our nation's future. This week, we'll get an up-to-the-minute report on the Bipartisan Policy Center's estimate of how much time the Treasury Department has before they reach the so-called X date. That is when the temporary measures the Treasury has been using since January to keep from breaching the $31.4 trillion debt limit will be exhausted. Our guest this week, Rachel Snyderman, is Associate Director of the Bipartisan Policy Center's Economic Policy Project. Snyderman joined the BPC following service with the Millennium Challenge Corporation, the Department of Commerce, and the Office of Management and Budget. That's the president's budget office. She earned her BA in economics and Latin American studies from Wellesley College, and she holds a master's from uh, Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. Rachel and her colleagues at the BPC keep a careful eye on the X date, and many people in Washington look to their, peri- uh, their periodic reports for guidance on how much time we have before a crisis hits. The latest report came out on Tuesday morning, and Rachel will let us know what it said. Rachel, Tori and Steve, welcome to Facing the Future. Thanks, Bob. Thanks.
2: Thank you. It's wonderful to be back.
1: Well, uh, and uh, it's wonderful of you to have a a new report just for us, (laughs) the uh, Bipartisan Policy Center's Uh, latest update on the so-called X-Date came out uh, Tuesday morning. And, Rachel, uh, what did you find?
2: Well, we um, right now are projecting that the United States may find itself in a position where it is unable to make good on all of its obligations. So be able to pay the bills that have come due in full and on time at some point between early June and early August. Now, why this is all significant is because the United States ran up against its debt limit in January, on January 19th. And at that time, Secretary Yellen, um, Secretary of the Treasury Yellen, was um, forced to deploy what are known as extraordinary measures, which really allow her to buy some time uh, by lawmakers sometimes to negotiate a path forward on how they address the debt limit. And so here we are a few months later um, that those extraordinary measures and cash on hand that the secretary has utilized um, are drawing down. And she has since notified Congress that it's time to take action. And so here at the Bipartisan Policy Center, we provide objective analysis for policymakers on the public as to... You know, when that range um, of risk really does intensify, when the United States might find itself um, in a position of a real cash crunch.
1: Well, I want to get into that uh, because that's that's really what everybody's hoping doesn't happen. And uh, But then again, we'll have to sort of make some assessments about what might happen. But before we get there, what uh, what kind of, without going into too much detail, what kind of Calculations go into the BPC's judgment of when we hit that uh, that X date.
2: Yeah, so it's an excellent question and it's really extensive, but I think what's really neat about our uh, analysis is that we're using all publicly available information. We are coming through the daily um, the daily financial statements of the Treasury Department that really look at every single agency, um, you know, what's coming in the door and what's going out. So kind of looking at what those tax revenues are that are coming into the IRS every day and which programs and services are being paid out to um. To Americans, And so we look at that, we use historical data as well to understand kind of when during the year we see potential um, changes in revenue and spending. So, for example, traditionally, April is always, say, a month where we traditionally bring in more revenues than we do in spending because of tax collection and tax season. Um, but then we see, you know, throughout the summer months, like July and August, for example, are some pretty um heavy spending months where a lot of payments um, and bills are coming due that the United States must meet in full and on time. And so we um, take all of this data from prior years and then also look at, you know, current economic growth projections that are provided by the Congressional Budget Office and trying to also anticipate, you know, some of the inherent uncertainty in the economy. Um, we're in a really fragile economy right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're trying to, you know, Give a best estimate on where we think revenue and spending patterns might might be in just the next few days and weeks, and then of course into the next few months. Um, and so it's with all of this information then that we are able to kind of pinpoint um, when we think the Treasury Department might draw down those balances, and when um, there is a risk uh, that you know th- when that risk intensifies as to when they um, might not be able to m- make good on all of those payments that come due.
1: I said I didn't want to get into the weeds, but before I pass over to Tori, I do want to get a little bit weedy on one thing. One of, one of the interesting things is, A, I, I think uh, that tax revenues have come in a little bit weaker than expected, so that could accelerate the X date. The other thing, and you can confirm that or if you can, but, but the other thing is June is a very strange month uh, relative to the debt limit because... There's there are quarterly filings that come in June 15th that could help boost revenues. Uh, Well, they do help boost revenues. The question is how much. And then there's a payment at the end of the month where uh, the Treasury Department uh, credits some of its uh, its trust funds with uh, payments and interest payments. And it can actually then not do that, I guess, and save some money. Uh, So how does that, the ups and downs of June figure into your calculations?
2: Yeah, so it's an excellent point. You know, I'll take that in two parts to explain, you know, first, you're right that we have seen a weaker overall tax season, especially compared to last year when revenues were far exceeding expectations. This year, they've come in below expectations. The other factor that's really interesting this tax season is that we have seen a number of states that have been impacted by weather-related events um, allow taxpayers to delay their filings, and so this has been significant, particularly in the state of California, where the majority of taxpayers and, and small and business owners um, have been able to extend their tax filing through October. Now, um, you know California is a significant, you know, very populous state. Um, makes up a significant share of federal revenues, and so that 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 in, in part is playing a, a role as well. Um, but we've also seen it impacted counties um, across several other states, including um, Georgia, Tennessee, um, New York, and, and others. Um, so just an important note this year. But then also completely right. June is uh, this is really where I emphasize in our range that there is a risk from early June to early August because. If we can get to that June 15th date when quarterly taxes come in, that could potentially get us then to be able uh, to get to June 30th, where as you as you note, this critical additional extraordinary measure comes in. And what these extraordinary measures are, or it's really just the secretary um, is able to temporarily adjust the normal operations of certain government accounts when the debt limit is, is reached. And so... She can choose to reduce um uh you know certain um amounts of debt that are held in, in trust funds. And so as she has noted publicly, there is a one-time additional payment um of $145 billion that she can tap into if we're able to get to that June 30th. Um point and the calendar. And so that is a significant that would create significant room under the debt limit and you know could potentially then support government funding or government operations through um through July and, and potentially into early August as well, and so it's really going to be a focus of the next few weeks how those tax revenues are coming in through the remainder of May, as we then look to see okay, what to, how does June shape up? Because you're right, these 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 dates of June 15th and June 30th are so critical, um, but we really don't know kind of where we fall, where that risk um, will materialize until we have more data, just even in the coming days.
1: I just picture people sitting around the treasury. Department, you know everybody wondering how much has come in. Just come in the door. You know, I mean, it's like you know we count money with it. You know, from the Concord Coalition fundraising dinner, it's like, did any checks come in today? <laughs> it's like,
2: well, I can tell you that yes, the treasury department's busy doing that, and uh, we here at BPC are are eagerly awaiting that 4 p.m. daily treasury statement that comes out to see you know what how our forecast matches up with the actual data.
1: Yeah, no way to run a government, uh, Tory. Uh, you want to <laughs> get in here? <laughs>
3: I don't know. You just wiped out every question I was going to ask.
1: <laughs> well, I've got to, you know, no, yeah, yeah. focus on the future. <laughs>
3: yeah, well, no, I, I want to drill down on this um, this June time frame. And I'm just going to recap a little bit at what you said. First, I want to point out that. For those of you who haven't seen the BPC report yet, I encourage you to, to go read it because one of the interesting things that they have in their report that I haven't seen anywhere else is they actually put out a calendar for June and July, and they list all the different sort of major bills that uh, Treasury is going to have to pay during that timeframe. And it's really, really interesting to look at. And if you just look at, you know, the first couple of, of days in June, you know, as as you were saying earlier, you know, the big question on everybody's mind is whether Treasury is going to collect enough revenue to pay all of its bills uh, you know, before you know, June first, June second, comes or you know to pay all of its bills before June fifteenth. Actually, right, because that's when the next big bump of revenues are due. You know, people who pay their taxes, their income taxes via quarterly estimated payments, they've got another payment that's due on June fifteenth. So the big question is, can the government? That's our first hurdle. Can the government get to June fifteenth? And when you look at BPC's uh, calendar. You know, between June 1st and June 15th, Treasury is going to have bills totaling approximately $170 billion. That's how much cash they're going to need to pay those bills, including about $50 billion in Social Security payments. And as of Friday, last Friday, Cinco de Mayo, uh, Treasury had about $206.7 billion uh, in cash on hand. So right now, technically, they could make that, that payment. But obviously, there's a lot of field, if you will, a lot of running room, a lot of uh, football field in between now and then. So And I don't know if you can answer this, Rachel, but I'm going to ask the question anyway. Can you put some sort of probability on whether or not, you know, the Treasury can make it to that point? I mean, is it like 50-50 that we can get to June 15th? Is it like 10%? Is it like 90%? You know,
2: how big is that risk? So it's an excellent question. And to describe a little bit of how we think about the, the range that we provide, it's, You know, right now. So I should first say that it's going to depend on how what the next even week looks like in revenues, and BPC will be providing additional analysis um, to be able to better narrow that range, even in the coming days. But I'll say on your point about kind of the range and the and the, um, uh, and how we assign that risk if treasury is in a situation where its cash balances are are so low that there could be a potential risk that it could find itself unable to make good on its obligations on one day even if that risk is 1% um you know if we're looking at kind of at those low cash balances um that's not a good place for the department to be. And so we 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 specified this range as um as one in which the risk of default increases as the as the range uh as the range continues. And so um and so right now we'll be able we'll be able to narrow that range in the coming days, but right now I can't really provide, you know, a particular percentage um uh, likelihood on on where default is landing um, given this with this particular range, because I, I will note, I mean, at this, at this point, you know, the range is, it is, it's, it is relatively wide, but a lot of that is just because we really do need these next two weeks of, of understanding the revenue growth um, or not to understand kind of what that risk in, in June um, will look like, um, you know, from June 1st to June 15th and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is, Lawmakers need to look at this range as there's risk across it, and they really do need to act well in advance of that range. We believe um, to ensure that the full faith and credit of the United States is upheld. Um, you know, as we encroach on that range or or cross into it, they really are you know, choosing politically to play with fire every single day with the full faith and credit of the United States. Steve, Not?
1: oh. oh. <laughs>
3: No, I was wondering if I had time to ask one more question before we went to break. Because you know, oh well, we do have, we
1: do have time for more questions. Did you have a follow up, Tori? or
3: uh, I, I mean, I still want to talk about debt default, but I'm happy to defer to Steve and ask later. Yeah, I just I just wanted
0: to clarify one point. So, so Rachel, you mentioned that at the end of June, the Treasury Department has the ability to essentially uh, restock its extraordinary measures. Um, And and let me back up and and sort of frame the question. So in January, when the Treasury Secretary sent the letter to Congress saying that they were approaching the debt limit, they declare what's called the debt issuance suspension period, which gives them the authority to take extraordinary measures for a defined period of time. And in January, they defined that through June, and that allowed them to basically tap into the Civil Service Retirement Fund and Mm -hmm. the Savings Fund and, and some of the other funds. Is it possible, I guess I should know the answer to this, but, you know, does Treasury actually have to wait until June when the current debt issuance suspension period ends before they can declare a new one? Or could the Treasury Secretary actually send a letter today saying, well, it doesn't look like we're going to have this wrapped up by the end of June. So I'm going to declare an additional period of time and they could get some more money now rather than waiting until the end of June.
2: So it's an excellent question. My understanding with the previous debt limit episode in 2021 was that the secretary extend, you know, continued to extend the um, debt issuance suspension period, what we commonly call the DISP. And so, but you're right, that we would need um, a new DISP or an extension of the current um, DISP to be able to um, utilize new extraordinary measures that that come into, that um, could come into play. So, um, I know that the current debt issuance suspension period runs through June 5th um and so we'll certainly be looking um for an update and uh, you know I'm I would not be surprised if um or I probably anticipate that the Treasury Department will be sending you know frequent updates to to lawmakers as they um you know hope to negotiate a path forward and um so we'll we we should probably we will probably gain greater clarity on that, especially as we understand in the coming days and weeks what this early June risk looks like um, and materializes um, with the additional May revenue data that will be coming in.
0: You're not quite sure, nor am I, whether the Treasury Secretary can declare a new DISP period before the current period ends.
2: In the previous debt limit episode, it was extended. I just can't remember if it was extended on, on the day that it expired or if it was extended previous if, if it was okay. extended prior to that date.
3: Troy, you got about three minutes. Rachel, there's been lots of talk about how default affects people who receive payments from the federal government, mm-hmm. you know, people who receive Social Security, uh, you know, Medicare providers who receive payments through Medicare. And so, but I'm curious, how does debt default affect people who don't rely on? Money from the federal government. I'm thinking in terms of you know people with variable rate interest, or variable rate mortgages, and credit card debt, and stock price. You know what? So I mean, just because you don't receive money from the federal government doesn't mean you shouldn't worry about this, right?
2: Yeah, and I think I mean it's an excellent point. And first and foremost, it's why you know we do provide these. Um, some of this data on these calendars in our analysis so that folks can really understand, you know, this is a really wonky, weird concept of the debt limit. You know, what does this mean when we breach it? And these, you know, confusing terms of extraordinary measures, you know, we provide this analysis so that the public can really understand, wow, you know, even if you're right, I'm not on a certain, I don't receive a certain type of benefit payment. Um, you know, looking at, for example, that funding to the Department of Transportation or to the Department of Education could be delayed and that could immediately impact, you know, your local infrastructure and and schools. Um, But then as we see too, you know, the potential impacts um, right now, you know, borrowing costs for the government rise when we are in debt limit episodes because investors would get increasingly spooked of holding U.S. debt. And they want to request, you know, higher returns on holding that debt because it's we are seen as, as riskier borrowers. And so um, U.S. taxpayers are immediately the ones who are on the foot uh, or who, who are on the hook to foot the bill for those, um, rising, um, those rising costs for the government to borrow. Um, and there's also crowd out, you know. Other public investments, um, you know, as it directs, as our interest payments redirect resources that we could otherwise be spending on, you know, on the military, on education, on um, on the environment, and so um, I think it's important for folks to realize that. Now, there's a lot of discussion about what a you know a default scenario could look like, right? And I think that the important point to emphasize is that it would inject. Tremendous uncertainty into the market. And we know that markets don't like uncertainty. Um, And so, you know, whether this could be um, rising interest rates that then immediately affect consumers from folks who are paying car loans to, you know, their credit card bills um, and their mortgages, um, even down to, you know, potential impacts on on those who hold equities and and their stock and retirement accounts, um, and potentially, you know, adverse impacts of the employment. Um, when it comes to employment and the unemployment rate. And so it's really hard to be able to quantify what that kind of doomsday scenario looks like because we've never been there. Right. Um, but I think that the the most important point I would say is that, you know, this would be Washington choosing this scenario, right? We we've been here before. We know how to fix this. We've seen the market risks materialize even from political brinkmanship. Um, but, Lawmakers know a way out. They need to either raise or suspend the debt limit. Um, And it's really, you know, how they come to that agreement this time that is going to the the markets and uh, taxpayers and and frankly, the global economy is going to be dependent on.
1: Well, we'll get into some of that and uh, do some speculation Um, after we take this break. You're listening to Face in the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are discussing the debt limit X date with uh, Rachel Snyderman, Associate Director of the Bipartisan Policy Center's Economic Policy Program Project. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson and I are discussing the debt limit uh, X date, among other things, with Rachel Snyderman, associate director of the Bipartisan Policy Center's economic policy project. The BPC just came out with their new X date, meaning when does the Treasury Department run out of borrowing authority uh, and uh, hence lose the ability to pay all of our bills on time, in full and on time. And uh, sometime between early June and August is when the BPC says that that will happen. Um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, what options the Treasury secretary will face should we get there. Uh, Rachel, um, Janet Yellen's going to have some tough choices to make, uh, If we actually get to that point where we have more bills to pay than Treasury has cash on hand or borrowing authority left, uh, what would be the choices faced by the Treasury secretary?
2: You know, so I would say that. You know, first and foremost, it would we would really be in uncharted territory. We we truly don't know. Now there are discussions that have happened over the past years, and you know, as debt limit episodes have intensified, particularly over the last decade, that you know potentially the Treasury Department and government officials could you know choose to to make good on some payments with the revenues that are coming in. um, That we could potentially prioritize um, our. interest and in principal payments on our national debt. Um, but I really do want to say to emphasize that we we don't we don't quite know. Um, there are extraordinary technical, economic, and legal challenges that would amount. But as we kind of hear the words, you know, payment prioritization thrown out in the news and among politician talking points, it's important to kind of clarify what that could mean. So there are potentially kind of two instances where, you know, maybe the Treasury Department could, could kind of enter into one of these prioritization schemes. The first is that the Treasury Department, after prioritizing and, and making good on our our um, interest obligations, um, that they could you know, check, choose which payments get paid and which do not. Um, so, you know, maybe they prioritize um, Social Security and military payments over SNAP benefits and reimbursements to Medicare providers. I don't know. You can imagine that even just me trying to list off those four payments, um, you know, could quickly become a very chaotic and unmanageable process. We also don't even know operationally how they would even make that happen. And so, you know, the, the Treasury Department is looking at, I mean, millions of payments that are coming in and out of the door. Um, and it would truly become an, an unruly situation and also um, you know, full of legal challenges um immediately, especially as you know, if the United States is making good on its invest on its payments to you know foreign bondholders um, before making critical payments to to American voters. There's also some discussion that potentially the department could instead just wait until a full day's revenue comes in and then be able to pay those bills that have come due with that with that revenue. So for example, we are traditionally running deficits meaning that day to day we're spending more than we're bringing in in revenues and so if it takes about, you know, a couple of days of revenues to come in the door to make one Days worth of payments, um, that's where we would see kind of a a payment delay scenario where, you know, as you look at some of these these large payments that are due in June and July, um, that's really where we start to anticipate, okay, well, if we, um, you know, if we're in a situation where we really are counting every single penny that's coming in the door and we're not able to get those bills out um, until we have sufficient revenues to make it on one day, you know, those bills could get delayed a day, three days, even longer. And that time period would extend as the debt limit impasse draws on. Um, so, you know, I think that, especially as we're talking about you know, being in this uncharted territory and, um, you know, no one really knows how the government would operate. Um, You know, you'd be asking folks to come to work and who might not be getting paid um, or there is a, you know, uncertainty about when that payment would go out. So, um, it's, it's really important to emphasize that you know, there's just there's so much uncertainty in such. Yeah, I I think that from past,
1: you know, from past uh, episodes, there's some speculation that the Treasury Department would be able to prioritize interest uh, on the debt because it's run out of a separate account. But that's that's not we're kind of assuming that that might happen, but it's not uh, so far. Secretary Yellen hasn't really confirmed that. But even if that's so, you get to all the other payments that you mentioned and you know, even if you had some sort of prioritization, which is not something the Treasury is set up to do right now, so I want to emphasize, as, as you did, that there's there's no process for doing that. But even if there was, that you would have the the pro, uh, the programs and payments that were not prioritized would be cut substantial or delayed. I mean, it, 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 as you said, so you know, if you're expecting a payment from the government, uh, you may not get it, and that includes you know all sorts of Benefit, But it's also contractual obligations on the part of the government, which they could be sued for because these are legal obligations. And so if the government is deficient on its payments, uh, that actually ends up costing more money. And uh, and even as you said that the nature of the debt limit is such that it does not cut spending. It just means you can't borrow to pay your bills. And so the bills sort of stack up until you have enough cash coming in to pay them. But it does it doesn't provide a way to avoid Uh, Paying them forever, so it's um, yeah, it's 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 uh, quite a conundrum. Um, It certainly is. uh, Steve, did you have a a follow up on? uh...
0: Well, you know, just speaking about legal issues, I noticed that the National Association of Government Employees had just filed a suit, and you know, in essence, they're saying that the, uh, the 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 statutory debt limit results in a unconstitutional delegation of authority to the president. And I'll, I'll let me unpack that a bit. So the, the ideas we were just discussing is if the government runs up against the debt limit and it can't borrow anymore, it would have to somehow prioritize its payments and it would have to either pick and choose what to pay or it could delay payments or whatever. And historically, when, for example, when we have what's called a government shutdown where the government fails to pass the appropriation bills on time, The government is shut down, but there's what's called the Anti-Deficiency Act. And what it essentially says is that you have exceptions to the general prohibition that the government cannot incur obligations without appropriations. And so what happens in a shutdown is that that the law specifies that exempted personnel, which are sort of the term essential and non-essential has been thrown around. Essentially, what happens when there's a shutdown is essential personnel are told to report to duty and continue your essential functions. And hopefully when we get the government up and running again, you'll get paid. And that's the way it always works, but that's a statutory authority that provides a a specific delegation to to the executive branch of defining essential functions and allowing those to continue. Under the debt limit, it simply says, you reach the limit, you can't borrow anymore. So if as a result of reaching the debt limit, the government tried to do, the executive branch of the president tried to do what they do under a shutdown, which is to prioritize payment. The argument is they don't have the authority to do that because the, unlike the Anti-Deficiency Act that applies to the government shutdown or failure to pass appropriations, there's no parallel or similar language that tells the government what to do in the event of breaching or reaching the debt limit. And so the argument, the lawsuit that's been filed is to say, well, if the government tried to pick and choose, they would be doing so without authority to do that. And we know from, you know, the the landmark uh, Supreme court case, uh, Clinton versus New York city, uh, the the Supreme court has already ruled that the line item veto is not constitutional because the way it was drafted, it gave too much discretion to the president to decide what to spend and what not to spend. And so the argument here is similar that the, Debt limit would result in too much authority being given to the president, and therefore it is, it, it produces an, unconstitution, an unconstitutional result. Um, very, very interesting case.
1: Did you want Justice Snyderman to uh, to rule on that?
0: (laughs) I'm not sure there was a question. I'm not sure there was a question at the end of that uh, that filibuster. No. Well, uh, you can't make a question
1: out of it by just there. There are things that people have been uh, coming up with, such as the 14th Amendment or a platinum coin or uh, other other uh, things. I mean, do you think as we get into this, um, get closer and closer to the X date that uh, that these ideas will get? uh more attention or or will will they will will the x-date force some sort of uh result
2: you know i certainly uh, hope that they won't get more attention because i think that you know they come up every single debt limit episode and i think that we have to just stop and take full stock that Again, these are also operational maneuvers that are untested that we've never done. And I think we have to think about the uncertainty that they would inject into the global economy if the largest economy in the world um, was resorting to a last-minute new technique to stave off default. Um, I just I think from a economic and reputational risk um, that they would just be impractical and and potentially you know illegal. They would be uh, met with with immediate. Um, legal challenges as well. So um, I think that lawmakers certainly know how to address the issue at hand, um, especially uh, if
1: they they, they in, do. The That's why they have don't been here before. <laughs> it's, it's because they know that uh, how to do it, that they don't want to do it. <laughs> <laughs> it would involve some tough choices on uh, spending and taxes. Um, Well, we're going to talk uh, more about the debt on uh, the other side of this break and uh, look at uh, some other things that uh, Rachel has been writing about at the Bipartisan Policy Center, just about uh, why the debt matters. Uh, You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson and I are discussing the debt uh, with Rachel Snyderman, Associate Director of the Bipartisan Policy Center's Economic Policy Project. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson and I are discussing the debt and the debt limit uh, and the so-called X date uh, with Rachel Snyderman, Associate Director of the Bipartisan Policy Center's Economic Policy Project, uh, the BPC recently just uh, on Tuesday, put out their most recent uh, projection of when the Treasury Department will run out of borrowing authority if the debt limit isn't raised. And it could come as soon as early June or possibly as late as as August. Um, Tori, let me uh, go to you for a question.
3: Sure. I just wanted to, to hammer home a point that you had made earlier, Bob, and that is you know, the the, the debt limit is not the debt limit itself is not a conversation or has no impact on on fiscal responsibility right it doesn't control spending in the future um the, the, the right time to have a conversation about fiscal sp- responsibility is at the time that we are passing legislation <laughs> that allows fiscal irresponsibility so when we pass tax cuts that you know aren't paid for when we pass big spending bills that aren't offset with uh, new revenues you know when we fund wars you know, without any kind of, you know, and we're asking our soldiers to sacrifice, but we don't ask, ask, you know, American people to sacrifice by paying higher taxes in order to to fund the war effort. So, you know, I, the, the time to talk about the big debt is is when we're passing those bills. And I think Americans are right to be current, concerned about the big debt. Right, Rachel? I mean, there's a reason why we worry about a large national federal debt. Right.
2: Yeah, I completely agree. And I think that it's it's important to recognize that, you know, all policymakers own this. I mean, whether or not policymakers have supported increases in spending or tax cuts, you know, the accumulation of deficits over time have created a national debt of three point thirty-one point four trillion dollars. Um, that is, you know. Eclipsing the size of our economy, um, you know, just to kind of put that in perspective. Over the past, you know, fifty years, our jet GDP has averaged about forty four percent, and what we've seen, you know, coming out of the COVID pandemic, know, um, that that increase now to to nearly the size of our economy, um, and sometimes you know these these are massive numbers that we're we're throwing around and on the day to day you know perhaps they um you know aren't top of mind for for everyone out there but i do think that as we kind of think about you know how we respond to the next pandemic or you know how our schools are funded um you know as we kind of think about what our priorities are what we look to the government to provide through programs and services um if the ability for the government to to allocate investments um, to those priorities that that we that we need um, are instead you know um, deprioritized so that we can make good on our interest payments and and pay our debt. You know I think that that's alarming and so um, you know especially as we kind of start to see some of the longer term economic impacts of a rising debt um, is um, you know I'm happy to get into to some more of the numbers there but I do think that. Um, there's a lot of schools of thought out there, but, um, I am concerned about the, the fiscal trajectory and, um, and the fact that, you know, we, we know the solutions mm-hmm. <laughs> we can, we can fix this, we mm-hmm. can correct course, but it does take, you know, everyone working together to, to make a, you know, a healthier fiscal future.
3: Okay. So let's talk about this a little bit. You wrote a great paper a little while ago about the impact of big, big debt on us competitiveness. I know a lot of people, when they think about the, the national debt, they're like, I, 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 I I can't comprehend it. I, I, it's it's too big. I don't and I don't. Frankly, I don't know why that matters to me. I it's really hard to personalize. You know, thirty one point four trillion dollars in, in debt and say this is why you should care, Mister American, Mrs. American. So one of the things you said in your paper is that a large national debt depresses private investment. So let's unpack that a second. What exactly is private investment and why is it important to our economy.
2: Yeah, that's an excellent point. And so, you know, we're really thinking about the fact that, you know, as we're seeing um interest rates rise, you know, we're this there's this kind of crowding out effect in 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 economics that that we're pretty obsessed with, right? That we're looking at the fact that, you know, as interest rates creep up, you might um have private capital that could um uh that would otherwise that um that that investment in in government um sorry I'm trying to think about how like best to say this in the kind of the layman's terms, but um you know as interest rates increase um that basically the return and in loan investments on private capital um are are not as great. And so you know we think that over time um this could impact um employment you know, private investment in the United States and detrimentally impact, you know, the U.S. economy at large. And so um, as our interest costs accumulate, and as we're seeing, you know, we've, we've, we're have we coming out of a time period of um, where we had interest rates that were low for a significant period of time coming out of the great recession. Now we're seeing the impact of those rising interest rates on those costs we've seen in recent, um, even just recent event, uh, in recent months, how those rising interest rates have impacted private businesses through additional um, layoffs and kind of economic contraction among the business community, that's decreased private investment um, among those companies and and among those sectors of the economy, which then, you know, contribute to this greater economic contraction. And so, you know, as interest rates continue to rise, um, you know, that's certainly a significant concern. And um, that is just only kind of, um, uh, Exponential when we're thinking about kind of the the bills that are coming due in terms of our larger interest payments um, for the national debt, and so you know it's all interrelated. But I really do think that um, you know it's not just the public sector that we're concerned about, but we're also kind of the, this complete holistic economic picture of um, the importance of private investment um, and its impact on the labor market as well.
3: Sure. No, I was just trying to you know give a like a. a- a real home experience, you know, if I'm a, uh, one of the, 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 things that COVID revealed is that a lot of our supply chain is, you know, sort mm-hmm. of scattered throughout the globe. And when we figured out that, Hey, that that's actually a real risk to us. Um, and so there's been this big incentive to try and rehome a lot of the, the, the supply chains for automotive manufacturers, biomedical, uh, engineers and manufacturing and pharmaceutical drug manufacturers, et cetera. So if I'm Eli Lilly, and I want to build a new manufacturing plant to produce my next, you know, really important drug here in the United States, I need to build a plant, I need to purchase the equipment, I need to hire people, you know, I don't have the cash to do that all at once. So I need to go out and find new capital. And I do that in the form of borrowing money, for example, that's one way. Well, if interest rates are sky high, because we have this big national debt, and The federal government's grabbing, gobbling up so much money, interest rates are rising. Suddenly, I'm priced out of a loan and I can't build that plant. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Same thing if I'm Ford Motor Company and I'm trying to get chip manufacturing relocated here in the United States. I've got to build a big, huge factory with a clean room, et cetera, et cetera. All that costs money. Same problem. So, um, big national debt means high interest rates, which means, you know, it's really hard to get. The cash that you need, the liquidity that you need to build all these things—build new roads, building bridges, et cetera—that that, that make um that 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 make our economy grow.
1: Um, I just want to uh, add because we got we got uh, about two minutes left here, but you also made the point aside from the potential negative economic consequences that it could uh, re- it could af- affect uh, adversely our ability to prepare for the next say, global pandemic or for national security mm-hmm. uh, yeah. in other ways.
2: Yeah, so We've actually seen, you know, um, in really the past decade, you know, a number of national security experts, you know, um, elected officials and, um, you know, both current and former who have come out and said that, you no know, the, the our rising debt is one of the greatest threats to our national security um it, it could hamper our ability to respond to the next global disaster um or or domestic um disaster as well and so you know certainly as we're looking at um you know the all of the lessons learned from the covid-19 pandemic both from a you know response um perspective then also the the fiscal costs associated with the stimulus that was needed to inject into the economy, um, in such a fast pace, um, you know, a high debt burden could could hinder our ability to be able to not only react in such a, a quick time. And as we're thinking about too, you know, as Tori brought up the importance of, you know, how interconnected our economy is. I mean, the fact that we were able to invest in research and development so quickly and begin, um, you know, research on, um, on vaccine development, right. And be able to be the world's leading provider in those vaccines. Um, You know, all of that could come into, could be jeopardized by our, um, you know, uh, potentially hamstringing our fiscal response, our fiscal ability to respond. Mm
3: -hmm. I want to talk about a geopolitical risk as well. Um, China, for example, holds 12% Mm -hmm. of our U.S., Treasury debt. Okay. Now treasury debt isn't held by just Americans. So China holds 12% of our debt. And right now, China and the United States are not getting along very well. And so what happens if, for example, you know, things start to get tense over Taiwan? China doesn't like what we're doing in support of Taiwan. China says, Hey, America, hey, Mr. President of the United States, if you don't start nosying in our backyard, we're going to stop buying your debt, for example. You know, so it's 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 pretty clear that a large national debt, especially when a, a significant chunk of it is held by foreign investors, that sort of opens us up to geopolitical risks that we may or may not be able to remedy.
2: I c- couldn't agree more, and especially as we're seeing too, you know the the inherent risk that's injected also in the current limit debate over the debt limit, right? The you know the dollar is the world's reserve currency. Um, we know that there's already a threat. You know, posed on that by by international adversaries as well, and so I think that you know the the two are are connected when we think that you know if we're looking at if we're looking to be a riskier borrower because we can't um, decide how to address our debt limit, and um, you know an increasing share of that debt is held abroad. Um, it certainly does um, heighten these global challenges that we face, um, uh, and I think you know it behooves lawmakers to. Um to address them and of immediately. Mm-hmm.
1: That uh we're gonna have to leave it there. Um, we've certainly covered a lot of issues on the debt and uh appreciate all of your insights and the work that you do at the Bipartisan Policy Center on the uh the debt limit and the X date. Uh we all wait for the report and uh and uh, it really helps provide guidance. Um so Thanks for for your work at the Bipartisan Policy Center. And that's all the time we have this week. Uh, Thank you to Rachel Snyderman, Associate Director of the Bipartisan Policy Center's Economic Policy Project. And thanks to Tori and Steve for joining me in today's conversation. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and I'll be back next week with another edition of Facing the Future.